Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Meta, a podcast about podcasts, and my name is Peter Wells, and joining me today is Brett Tahoot from The Hardest Word. Now, The Hardest Word is quite an interesting podcast. As you'd imagine, it talks about apologies and why human beings find it so hard to make apologies, even when they know they're in the wrong. So let's take a quick listen, and then we'll speak to Brett. Greetings all. Welcome to The Hardest Word with me, your host, Brett Dehoot. Well, finally, a special edition of the podcast I've been promising for far too long. A conversation with Patrick from Kigale, Rwanda. Now, Patrick delivered us a powerful apology that finished our first series. It revolves around his deep regret for not saving the life of his neighbour during the 1994 genocide. We're going to hear that apology. And then afterwards, you're going to hear a conversation with Patrick about why he made that apology, the impact of making it, and the roles that apologies are playing in the reconciliation and rebuilding of Rwanda, which has gained broad approval and admiration from around the globe. How do you start to put a country together after a genocide? Well, Patrick has some thoughts on that. The line is not great. It was via Zoom, but it is absolutely well worth the listen. First, the apology, and then our conversation. My name is Gatete. I'm from Kigali, Rwanda. I want to apologize to the man I didn't save in 1994 genocide against Tutsi. Something that's been haunting me for 24 years, and it will probably haunt me for the rest of my life. Okay, Brett, thank you so much for joining me today, mate. Absolute pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about your background, because podcasting isn't the main thing you do. No, it's not. Um, it's my little side project. A long time ago as a journalist at such esteemed publications such as New Idea and Truth Newspaper, and uh, worked in commercial talk radio at you know, 3AK as a producer and then presenter, and way back in 2004 became a podcaster when the technology and the whole phenomenon was very new as well. And for a long time, I've been a social marketing consultant. So I work with largely with nonprofits mm-hmm. around marketing, campaigning, media and stuff like that. Oh, awesome. And uh, have you convinced any of your clients to do a podcast? No, I haven't. I have, however, advised several of them to not start a podcast. <laughs> and why is because, that? <laughs> well, I've been around long enough now to see the beginnings of many technologies and platforms and phenomenons and each of them I mean this is throughout the course of human history I'm sure each of them holds so much promise and potential and it's always tempting to go to the shiny new thing so you know let's let's drop you know brochures and go to the internet you know let's um drop the internet and just do email let's drop email and do social media let's do 
And every time any sort of momentum that is built up with the previous method of communication is lost. And I, I feel that each new option that people have taken up actually gets you less and less reward. You know, Ooh. so people wanting to start a podcast, it's often very ego driven. And I feel, I don't know about you, but as a podcaster, I know how slim the rewards might be. So if you're an organization doing it out of your own budget and dollar and expecting to change the world with the podcast, I think you may be mistaken. So no, I'm a very curmudgeonly um, <laughs> comms advisor and I, and I say, do not podcast. Also, Peter, why would we want any more competition? Well, I mean, uh, you know, a uh, 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 rising tide lifts all boats, I guess, but... <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right that people, I, I have actually had so many people over the years ask me about starting a podcast and, and what they do, and, you know, how, how they should get one off the ground. And, you know, most of the time the the questions are, what microphone should I buy and what software should I use? And it's like, no, no, before you even think about that, how much time do I have to to devote to this? And like you said, like, and how many years can I run it uh, at a loss? before I'm going to throw in the towel because they're the, they're the things you want to think about when, when you're starting a podcast, because honestly, that that's, I think the more realistic uh, approach. Could not agree more. And I was on some Facebook group for podcasts and it was a big one, you know, tens of thousands of people. Only topic of discussion is technical stuff and preferably what can I buy? You know, no one ever asked, how do I do a good interview? You know, um, what makes an interesting guest? How, you know, nothing about editorial issues, all about technical. And I mean, I have seen, despite my best advice, Peter, I've seen clients begin podcasts or other nonprofits. And of course, it's very sexy. The CEO gets to perhaps be the host suddenly. Mm-hmm, They're hosting mm-hmm. a podcast and they get to invite people on. It's all very, oh, I'm, I'm doing a podcast tomorrow. And in the end, no one listens. Mm. No one listens. So what's the point? Yeah, no, no, I, I totally get it. So, well, let's talk about your show and hopefully some people... No, just- I want to bitch about other people starting podcasts, <laughs> not promote my own, Peter. <laughs> well, come on, let's let's talk about the hardest word. Oh, all right, all right. It's a very good podcast. <laughs> so, so how long has it been going and where did you come up with the idea? I started in May 2019, finally got it on air in May 2019, and I had been... As I mentioned, you know, I, I literally did a podcast in 2004 mm. and that was um, me speaking to an Anglican priest and it was called The Anglican and the Atheist. And we discussed theology from two different perspectives and church life. And I did a couple of other versions. Of course, they all died and no one ever listened to podcasts back then. Mm. And I, I do a lot of media training and spokesperson training and clients began to ask in the initial phone call, Brett, do you handle apologies? And that honestly threw me. I wasn't sure what they meant, but apologies have risen to such a place in our culture that CEOs and leaders want to feel prepared to deliver an apology if it ever comes to pass that they need to do it. And I thought this is an interesting twist to the the culture. Then YouTube celebrities started apologizing in that very formulaic form. Social media is full of people demanding some, you know, bank apologizes or some group apologizes. And of course, with no intention to accept the apology. And the final sort of um, camel that broke the straws back was Serena Williams in the final of the US Open. Um, If you recall, she had a very big outburst of anger at the chair umpire playing Mm -hmm. Naomi Osaka and pointing to him with her finger from below, he's up on the chair saying, I demand an apology. I demand an apology. 
And of course, actually she owed him an apology because her coach was caught on video trying to coach her. Yeah. So she was in the wrong in the middle of the, the U S open final demanding an apology. And I thought something's gone amiss or awry with the concept of apologies. And that's when it sort of hit me. Why not? Let's get people giving their apologies on the air. And someone said to me, never underestimate people's willingness to publicly expose themselves in this era. So there you have it. Okay. Well, before we get more into uh, that, then the, the show itself, I, I am now curious because you, you said that you do uh, client work and uh, communications work. And, um, and, and I imagine that a lot of that is, um, you know, crisis mitigation. It is. It's, it, it's avoiding the crisis in the first place. If you can, yep. it's, uh, it's compensating people and taking action to, I think the words ameliorate one's mistake in the first place. Absolutely. So I'm I'm just fascinated fascinated now to ask because I've I've lived as a journalist I guess close to but not part of PR and so I feel like I, I know some of the moves but I don't know all of them and I just pure, purely out for my own curiosity watching Scott Morrison talking about the the China tweet this week which this is going to date so badly but just for um, for, for my own uh, yeah. Uh, knowledge here. I feel that the that that was the worst possible thing he could do of like get up and be really really angry at the Chinese because of course they're not going to pull down the tweet. Then he looks ineffectual, uh, and then he also offends them a little bit more. Am I am I reading that incorrectly? Or for, from if you were if if Scott Morrison was one of your clients, what would you be recommending to him right now in in regards to this particular issue? Couldn't agree more. I think Scott Morrison handled it appallingly. He was seen to be able to be angered. That was the intention of the the Chinese tweet. And why would you play into their game? You do not look statesman-like. You do not look grown up. You are playing their game. And everything must be commensurate, you know. So your response to a tweet should be commensurate. My gosh, if that's the response to a tweet, where do you go when something really bad happens? So Mm. I thought that was appalling. It was also framing the situation as if the Prime Minister was on a par from the person behind the tweet, where in terms of hierarchy, they were not. So the Prime Minister should not be able to be angered at, you know, one diplomat's tweet. So it was terrible and awful. It should have been diminished and discarded and moved on. However, of course, there was a, a game above that, and that was that it was a strategic piece of anger. And now we are not talking about the Burden Report. We are talking about one goddamn tweet. Yeah, and that right. suits the Prime Minister. And so I think he would, in the end, feel on a Friday night as he puts his feet up in the lodge, thinking, yep, I did okay out of that. So it's all about surviving the week. Uh, it's surviving the day. It's also a distraction, distraction mm. from this appalling, unprecedented report that he, of course, in it's his fashion to diminish and to downplay any form of crisis. He's very much a business as usual, things are calm. In fact, he said on air once that the one, one thing he likes about Australia is we're not particularly into politics. He said that to Kyle and Jackie O. And he said, oh, I've always liked that about Australia. We don't obsess about politics too much, says the Prime Minister of a country. So um, it suits him to, uh, to you know, uh, disregard and diminish the, the Burton report by getting fussed about a tweet. So, look, no matter what one, he, and also what he doesn't care about is what the smart kids think about him. Mm. He caught on long ago, it really matters what the punters, preferably in Western Sydney and the like, feel about him. And he plays that beautifully. I, I'm not going to underestimate him. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right there. Uh, all right, well, you've made me depressed. Let's move on uh, and talk about the hardest word. Uh, so, so look, I, I find this really fascinating because obviously the someone apologising is at, at at an incredibly vulnerable space to to offer up an apology to admit wrongdoing so there's a natural kind of drama built into every episode that i've listened to so far oh wow i'm I'm delighted to hear you say that and i think one word i used to describe the show is intimate and i try to create that in terms of audio and of course but as you said anyone who comes on air you know on air on a podcast to expose an apology is taking a real punt is exposing themselves is there's a lot of trust there and I try and respect that and, you know, pay them back that trust. And it hopefully makes things compelling because if I always thought if you're overhearing a conversation on the train or in in your neighbor's flat or whatever, you know, you don't want to hear them talk about, you know, the shopping, you want to hear them more compelling to hear them talk about something serious or intimate or something they remember from long ago. Mm. And that's what these apologies expose really specific issues for those individuals. And some of them are lighthearted, by the way, and some of them are very dark indeed, but hopefully they're always compelling. So tell me some of the ones that uh, you want uh, the, the audience to hear about uh, some of the, because you've got some amazing apologies so far in the can. Oh yeah. I, I'm amazed. Look, the, the first series was 10 eps and the first one, the first apology was a very cute four-year-old girl in Hong Kong apologizing to her little sister for giving her little sister's doll an unauthorized haircut. She got bored, cut her little sister's hair. And now in the background, you can hear the little sister crying. That's cute. And the final apology in series one was an apology that everyone talks about. And that's a gentleman by the name of Patrick from Rwanda who lived through the 1994 genocide. Mm. And he knew his neighbor, liked his neighbor and the neighbor's wife and six children also was aware that the neighbour was on a list to be slaughtered during the genocide. And at one point they came for the neighbour's family. The neighbour desperately comes to Patrick's door and knocks on the door. He, Patrick and his wife have to decide whether to let that man in or not. And of course, in the knowledge that if you do, it will not end well for the neighbour, for Patrick or his wife. Mm. And he chose not to let in the neighbour and of course, now the neighbor was dragged away by a mob and you can only suspect that the neighbor was killed. And he is apologizing some, what, 26 years later or whatever about that. And it's really utterly remarkable. And you follow up with an interview, don't you? Yeah, I, I, I from the minute, obviously, from the minute I heard that apology, I thought this is going to be a high watermark in the apology. This is going to be nothing to compare with this. So sometime later, I went back and recorded an interview with Patrick and um, found him to be just very reflective. And he's obviously lived through something horrific. He also talks about it's affected his life on a daily basis ever since then. Mm. And he's had trouble with alcohol and relationships and all sorts of trauma as a result. And it was just a fascinating, you know, he was a fascinating person to talk to. Also, you know, on a larger level, apologies have played a very large part in the reconciliation of Rwanda between Tutu and Hutsi. So that is a, sorry, Hutu and Tutsi. So that is absolutely um, ironic or interesting that he's apologizing to feel better and the nation as a, 
as a whole is apologizing to each other and also having to forgive. I mean, people are living in the same townships and villages that they always lived in uh, with people who they know murdered members of their family. It's incredible. Remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah, I, I listened to it and it, it is an incredibly powerful episode. And, and one of the things, uh, just from a technical point of view, because part of this show is is to explain to podcasters um, how to improve their shows, maybe um, improve their reach. What I find really interesting is uh, you you put a lot of effort into the YouTube presentation of your podcast as well. Where do you find the time and, and what is the strategy there? Strategy is putting far too fine a point on it, uh, Peter. I wish I could say I had a big, deep strategy, but I, I reckon that having YouTube clips for many of the episodes allows me to very simply share an episode. I don't know, because I find a lot of people are not that sophisticated, including myself, are not very sophisticated online. And so that if you want to share a specific episode of a podcast, how do you do that? So I thought if you have a YouTube clip for a good episode, it gives me the chance to just say, clip, cl- click on this link and you will see the podcast, you know? So I have a, a, a gentleman I've found in Europe who makes videos for me. No original footage, of course, using, you know, clips that you get from a clip bank, you know, that sometimes work pretty damn well, sometimes don't, over, and they, they provide video and people listen to my audio. So that's, that's part of it. Also, I go to a lot of effort on the audio of each episode. And that's something that did, didn't come naturally to me. So I, I have Brian Wallace in California, who's a wonderful audio director for the show. He does original music, he does sound effects, he mixes it, and he makes it sound good. Because I think the sort of podcast that it is requires high audio production skills. So um, the YouTube allegedly gets me to a broader audience. It certainly allows me to share more episodes more easily. And it just allows people who will never listen to a podcast, but do look at YouTube to find the show. Allegedly. (laughs) <laughs> so what do you mean by that so so the numbers haven't translated as as well as you've hoped or what what why the allegedly oh well the allegedly i use because you know uh, as every podcaster knows you can build it but they might not come you know and uh, hey enough of this rising tide all boats routine that you said to me earlier on Peter. <laughs> it's tough to get a bloody listenership out there mm. and I think it's particularly tough if your show doesn't fit into a particular genre or doesn't have an obvious fan base. So the, so you always do one more thing. You know, you, you start off with the podcast and then you better have a Facebook page and then you better have a Twitter feed and then you do a YouTube clip and then an email list and it goes on and on and on and it grows and the effort and commitment grows, whether the audience grows with it, who knows, you know, certain things sort of work for building a podcast following, but I am probably not the best person to talk about that because my listenership is intimate <laughs> and petite. <laughs> it's, uh, Peter, I, I like to call it as real estate agents. It's a very closely held podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and that's the reality. And I have come to slowly come to terms with that. I did. I'm, I'm not um, so naive that I thought, oh, it's going to be you know, top 10 and I'm going to be famous and it's going to be rich. And I did not think that I'm a grown up, but and I've been in radio and media and marketing, but I thought the it would plateau somewhere significantly higher than it does. I mean, you know, we've had you know, 20,000 downloads or whatever across the year. So it's tiny. It's really small because mm. it's hard to explain. It's not hard to explain, but it's hard to market and it doesn't look great on someone's, you know, app. Mm-hmm. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When it comes to the, the length of time of your show, what do you aim for there? Is it, is it the story or the episode is as long as it needs to be? Well, I started off doing a format where there might've been three or four apologies around a certain theme. And then I went to single apology episodes and those episodes might run four minutes or five minutes. And the thinking behind that was that it's such a small amount of time. People might be willing to, you know, give it a shot, you know, quickly download it. And then I've now branched out into some interview based episodes where you hear the apology and then I interviewed the person. So they all work differently but I have sort of come to realize that maybe if someone is listening to a podcast, they want to get more than four or five minutes because they're enjoying it. Why would you start something that's going to stop so quick? So that is also up for grabs, but the apologies themselves are uninterrupted. I never, you know, intervene. So most apologies run about two or three minutes. And I think that's actually quite a long time to hear from one person saying one thing. Mm -hmm. So, so how long then, uh, what is the commitment you're looking at when, when you do a 10 episode season, uh, you said you've got, you know, someone in, in Europe working on the video, someone in California working on the audio, how long does each episode take to put together and, and, and for, for you to continue to come back and come back for season two, there must be some kind of re- reward there that goes above and beyond the numbers that you get. Yes, I have asked myself that many times. Why the hell am I doing this? Because I have picked this incredibly labor-intensive format. I need to find people around the world, and it's truly, I reckon, the most, it's an overused word, it's the most diverse podcast around. I mean, there are people, apologies from Afghanistan and China and Jamaica and Italy and Nigeria all the time. So I've got to spend an enormous amount of effort trying to get people willing to apologize. So I'm spending all this time online various groups of people who I think might be ready and willing and able to apologize. And I've got contacts now in the um, US prison system who have sent me a couple of apologies. But so there's all of that effort there. The recording is nothing. That's easy and simple. Mm-hmm. Then I outsource the editing. I outsource the video, but you've got to you know, monitor that to, for whatever word is appropriate. So it's a hell of a lot of effort. And I must confess, I came pretty close to calling it a day earlier on this year but it's funny how the podcast keeps giving you just enough to keep you going on you know it's like a bad romance you know it treats you badly and then oh you know you get uh, an interview such as this and it makes you think oh maybe it is interesting to people and maybe this will be the one that gets me more listeners and then I um, nominated for the Australian Podcast Awards and then I was shortlisted you know being nominated in the best interview well, that kept me going on. And I, I, you know, then I got a bronze and that kept me going on. So I thought, you know, am I going to keep doing this? And the problem is I genuinely, as unbiased as I could be about my own podcast, I see great potential in it. I think it is the sort of intimate, global, grown-up podcast that could find an audience. Mm. I think it's got 
everyone says this, I think it's got enormous potential on just on Facebook alone, sort of humans of New York-y type thing. You know, I think it's got potential for a TV show. So unfortunately, the potential is what keeps me going on. But a lot of people know, especially probably women out there, that, you know, you can see potential in a mate for years or decades at a time. And in the end, <laughs> you realise that potential a, will not be fulfilled, or perhaps it wasn't there in the first place. So I, I'm not sure what the future is, but I'm definitely going to keep producing more eps to keep putting it out there into the universe and to see what happens. Because if you don't do anything, well, nothing will happen. And so how, how much of your time is devoted to it then? There might be some weeks where I spend 10 to 15 hours on it, you know, and, and, and other weeks that I barely, you know, spend any time on it. But it's always something that has to be nursed along. And so, yeah, it, it varies, you know. And sometimes it's the, the thinking about it and the planning and, and the hopes and the dreams. So, you know, it, it would vary, it probably averages out to five hours a week, you know, and uh, more or less at various times. But it's, it's sort of about the, the frustrations of not feeling that it's where it should be in terms of audience. And of course, everything's up for grabs. I was just talking to Brian Wallace, my audio director, and potentially everything could be changed about the show. There could be a co-host. There could be a lot of discussion reviewing someone's apology. It could be a lot longer. It could be, you know, it could be live. I'd love to do live events as well. So the potential to change things and maybe find a niche, I'd love to also do other language versions of it. I'd love to find, in fact, I have started looking for a Spanish language podcaster who would be able to source their own apologies and also translate the ones that we've got in the bank, if you like, because I think it's global. You know, I think the for- format is very global. So the potential is what keeps me going on, Peter. Wow. And so, so you really do speak, to, speak about it as, you know, the, like potential is, the, is a great word for it, that uh, you can, you seem to have a, a, a stronger vision than a lot of people I speak to. Where does that come from? Like, well, do, you, do you have a grand roadmap somewhere? Do you have a, something that you just c- continually look back to? I don't have anything on paper, but it's, it's along the lines of what I've said, you know, about the, the podcast deserves, I think, a better audience. I'm not talking about Joe, Joe Rogan can rest easy in his Texas mansion, but a, a bigger audience and a greater appreciation. I think it lends itself to live events. I think it lends itself to a book. I think it lends itself to television. And everyone thinks that their idea is brilliant. So I'm no different to that, but I won't rest Peter until the world has discovered my genius. No, <laughs> um, but I genuinely think it's got potential. And I think it, it just, to me, it hits a certain button and out there and the feedback I've got, and I'm not talking about from friends and so on and so forth. In fact, you know, friends barely listen to my podcast, but smart people out there, maybe they're just being polite, but they do like it. You know, in fact, I think in terms of, listenership compared to critical response, if you want to call it that, um, it's, it's disproportionate. Mm. You know, when, when smart people hear it, they think, yeah, this is, this is unusual. This is different. This is good. But it's very hard to get it into the, into the you know, phones of people who won't even find it because it's a very hard to categorise podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I remember once this was, I think, about 2010, um, someone said this to me and it stuck with me and it was a podcaster actually. They said, uh, success isn't when, you know, everyone listens to your show. Success is when people you admire, admire your show. Oh, it's absolutely lovely when people, you know, that you respect who know what they're talking about, who don't have a vested interest in it, 
really like it, you know. And of course, you know, friends and family do listen to it and say, that's great, you know. And, you know, you think, <laughs> mm, mm, you know, I hear that tone. And, but it's lovely when, you know, uh, you know, we've got media coverage for it, you know, and, and from people you respect, you know, Patricia Carvalis was a huge fan of the show. She's interviewed me about it a couple of times. And that, you know, made me feel very grown up and very in. But of course, one thing you learn as a podcaster, by the way, I'm sure you and many of our listeners, you know, think this is, Nothing is an end unto itself. So you get that big fancy interview on, you know, ABC radio about the podcast and the host loves it and the co-host loves it. And you think, oh, can't wait to look at the download figures tonight. And there is, if anything, a small bump. Yeah, you know, I know. That, that is, you know, or you get recommended on some newsletter. You know, I've, that's happened plenty of times because it's so unusual. And you think, oh, this this will do it. And over time, you realize that nothing ever does it. You know, and I, I wasn't quite so naive as to think one interview will set me up, but I feel what is happening. And I feel podcasting's ecosystem is just a, a micro version of the new economy that we're in, is that nothing is ever going to set you up. Everything's do it yourself. Everything's at your own risk. Everything sort of is promised to work beautifully, but probably doesn't. So, you know, it's it's a tough market out there. I mean, you know, as you know, many, many millions of people should be listening to this podcast who won't, and it's tragic. It, it's so funny. I mean your podcast. No, 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 no. Well, thank you. But, you know, one of the reasons why there, there was a little bit of a break in this recording was, yeah, I got hit by the sads really hard about this show because it was one one episode specifically was Kara Swisher. And I really think that that's one of the best interviews I've done. And and Kara is a fantastic guest. You just point a microphone at her and she says 17 different amazing things in the course of 30 minutes. And she has like a million followers on Twitter and I, and she retweeted the episode. And I exactly what you were saying of like, well, you know, now Kara's retweeted it. Like, that's it. I'm done. I'm set. You know, <laughs> again, not that I'm uh, expecting the, the, Joe Rogan Mansion, and then and and that 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 is even that's what makes it harder. Let's let's be honest. Joe Rogan is an idiot. <laughs> there is no, why are people listening to him? <laughs> Peter, I I totally relate. Nothing delivers what is promised to be delivered, and that is increasingly so. You know, I I think it's you know another totally different version of that is you know there was a period when if you were the if you heaven forbid went to university and got a basic undergraduate degree, you were set for life, mm, you know, yeah. and you would retire at 60 and blah, blah, blah. And of course, every year that's become less and less true. And it's just exactly the same with podcasting and the advice you get and that you see out there in the world of, you know, YouTube educators, you know, and other, you know, hit podcasters is that do this and you'll get that. And it never happens. And Every now and again, something is sort of held out in front of you, you know, whether it be a guest with a big Twitter following who's going to send out the link and you think, yes, that's going to be it. But heaven forbid the people receiving her link or, you know, on her her tweet respond to it largely the same way as we respond to most of the tweets we get, as in we don't do anything with it. You know, there's just so much content, so many recommendations and so many demands on our time, probably more than throughout the course of human history that it is very tough to cut through especially if you're not a celebrity i know that if i was even a absolute stock standard middle of the road panel discussion comedian fm breakfast third host sort of person i'd have many 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 more thousands of listeners and subscribers and and followers and maybe just enough critical mass to start getting 
you know, somewhat famous people apologizing or big name apologies, et cetera, et cetera. So everything feeds into something else, but it's tough out there. Mm. Yeah, well, look, we, we really should leave on a positive then for, for the poor podcasters out there listening to us. Um, and, and, I, and I will. And, and I'll say that the reason I got back into this is, uh, first of all, I got some really lovely feedback from uh, other podcasters who, who found whatever this is uh, to be uh, rewarding and, and something that they were looking forward to. Secondly, though, I've got an interview at the end of the week with a, a podcaster that I've been listening to for now, maybe four years now. Love their show, and and that that one little discussion is going to be the thing that will keep me going for for the next six months. What is what is a, a highlight like that that you can point to um, that that is not just the potential, but is the reward that that gives you. The, the ability to show up to the mic. Well, one apology that really did reignite me at a time where, as you, you use the phrase, you know, you got the sads and I've had that about the podcast many, many times. Absolutely. But there was one podcast from a man in Kenya and his sort of Anglophone name was Dennis, Dennis Nurudi. And he sent me an apology to a monkey. I don't know if you've heard this episode. It is definitely worth it. It is, and I said this in the intro, this, there are 2 million podcasts out there, but this is unlike anything you will ever hear. (laughs) And it is a man. Of all the apologies we've had, and we've had, you know, mothers apologizing to children, children apologizing to mothers, people apologizing to their nation, to feminism. The most passionate apology we got was from Dennis Nuduruti in Kenya to a monkey. I'm not going to spoil it. And in it, he is so emotional. And it's so sincere and it's so unique to Western ears and to many ears, you know, and he also calls upon, how do I describe this? He, he goes into the supernatural all within the, 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 the confines of what a two and a half minute apology. It is gold. <laughs> and it was a bit like when Patrick gave us that very, very, very serious apology. I just thought, yep, there is nothing like this. Cop that, this American life. Cop that, you know. <laughs> You know, blah, blah, blah. They would kill for this sort of stuff. And every now and again, some guy in Melbourne working out of his home office on no budget, you know, I don't have any advertising, any sponsorship, just doing it for some vague reason, largely, as you said, Peter, the potential. You scored this unbelievable apology from someone, the sort of person, and the podcast is full of people you never hear from. You know, everyone talks diversity, and I'm sick of hearing about it because this this podcast just has people from countries we never talk about for their, their ordinary everyday people with really specific, unique, unusual aspects of their lives. And I, I am proud of that. That sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah. I haven't heard the monkey apology, so I, I will have to check that out. You haven't lived. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Brett, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and all the best of luck with your podcast. This, this podcast, unlike mine, will find an audience. I think it's going to absolutely grow. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, um, we can find your work at The Hardest Word. What is the URL? I think it's thehardestwordpodcast.com. Fantastic. Thanks again. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.